And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my candy. Welcome everyone to the beginning of another new year and our fourth episode in season six, better known as podcast number 61. Uncle Frank, What's on tonight's docket? Kazoos and all their glory. We have an expose filled with plenty of odd and beautiful and sometimes wacky kazoo pieces, along with facts and history to back them up, and another pretentious reading from Scholastic Books. Then comes our favorite eight lame supervillains, the villains that should never have been. So bad they're good, or just plain bad. You decide. Still later, for culture's sake, we have an avant-garde spoken word composition about Pinocchio. Classy. And more stuff, of course. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. Let's Let's get get started. Happy New Year from the Air Force. The men and women of the U.S. Air Force would like to wish America a very happy New Year. We're working to help make 1984 a time of peace and happiness for everyone around the world. It's rewarding work, and you can help. Ask your recruiter how. From all of us, here's hoping the new year will be your happiest year of all. The U.S. There's a sound that's easy to recognize, the great kazoo, an instrument, yes, I said instrument, that's part of the membranophone family, 
one that has an ancestry older than you think and has been used in recorded music much more than you think. Tonight we're going to scatter kazoo music throughout the show, along with tidbits of knowledge about this disrespected musical contrivance. We dive right in now with two tunes, the first performed by Monk Marvelous from his album Kazoo, Feel the Buzz. Then comes the Danish Freddie Frake with his Sauve Duke Lise. Thank 
Hvor er du kære? Det bedste jeg ejer på jorden så stille i vuggen her Og smiler så sødt til din mor Sov på gyldise Sov og blive stor Mens du sover Mor din mor Slet intet ondt En vugger skal nå Mor er jo hos dig på. Hvordan er det også, du bærer dig af? Hver dag, når jeg kører dig en tur Du rydmer og nikker og bliver så glad Fordi du kan pita gør kur So what's a kazoo anyway? We've all seen and played them, probably plastic ones, but there's plenty made from metal out there as well as glass, wood, paper. There's even an electric one. The modern kazoo is an open-ended tube which tapers at one end. Near the wider end is a round opening in the roof of the tube. On top of this hole is a circular rim called the turret, which has a membrane stretched across it. When a person hums or otherwise vocalizes into the wider end of the tube, the membrane vibrates, and you get that buzz sound. Now here's another example of that iconic buzz sound. Inspector Gadget. Nightmare. Turn off the light! 
20th Century Fox presents Race the Devil. We saw somebody murdered. What? Some sort of ritual across the river. A girl got stabbed. They're chasing us. Starring Peter Fonda and Warren Oates. There was nowhere they could hide. Alice, look what was stuck to the back window. It's some kind of message. Witchcraft. Witches? There was no one they could trust. Well, did anybody hear anything? Didn't anybody see anything? Go on with your trip. Have a good time. Leave this up to me. There was nothing they could do. They followed us all the way from Bandera. They're here right now watching us. But run. with the devil. There's somebody on top. Frank, it's gasoline! We gotta stay in here. Go good. Peter Fonda, Warren Oates, Loretta Swift, Lara Parker. Race with the devil. When you race with the devil, you'd better be faster than hell. I said before that the kazoo was a kind of membranophone. Well, membranophones are musical instruments that you get the sound from the stretched membrane. There are the ones you hit, like drums. Then there are the ones you sort of rub, like the Irish baw drum. And then there's ones you put a knotted string attached to the membrane, like the East Indian drums. Then there's merlitons. These are membranophones that vibrate the membrane to get the sound. Besides the kazoo, there's the lowly comb-and-paper merleton. I'm sure most of you have taken some kind of tissue or wax paper and made one of these. Here's how they sound. Then there is what is believed to be the earliest form, the horn merleton from Africa. It's made from a cow's horn and spider egg casings for the The first European merlitons were the eunuch and the onion flutes from around the 1500s. You played them from the side like a flute, from a hole in the side of the tube. One end of the tube was open and covered with a membrane, which of course vibrated when the person vocalized. 
The only difference between the eunuch flute and the onion flute was that the eunuch flute's membrane was made from a part of an intestine, and the onion flute used onion skins. Here's an onion flute, followed by the eunuch flute. the 1600s came another sort of merleton, the swazzle. It was in the Punch and Judy shows for Punch's voice. The swazzle was made with two small strips of metal bent and tied together to make an oval-like shape. A cotton tape sort of reed went down the middle of the oval between the two strapped pieces of metal. The whole device was placed towards the back of the mouth and held between the tongue and the roof of the mouth. When the performer exhaled or vocalized out past the reed, it vibrated. This sound could be changed by moving the tongue in certain ways. By the way, as you might think, the swazzle could be easily swallowed. So one end of a string was tied to it, and the other end was pinned to the performer's shirt. Yes, I know, these all sound pretty much the same. But in any case, by the 1800s, a type of Merleton, more like a kazoo, was being played by amateurs throughout North America. Where it originated from is not clear, but it led directly to our modern kazoo. Let's hear some comb buzzing from Doris Day's Comb Paper Polka and another gem from Monk Marvelous. Beneath an open window there stood a shy young fellow who played a comb and paper to serenade his love. He couldn't play piano, the fiddle, or the cello. He played a comb and paper to serenade his love when he played like this. When she showed him what her ruby lips were for And there beneath her window She kissed the shy young fellow Who played a comb and paper To serenade his love Then he played his tune again And they danced the polka To his catchy melody Soon they stopped to spoon again And she whispered Hold me in your arms forever so beneath the moon again 
as he played his serenade the whole night through. Just as the stars were fading from the blue, she whispered, Darling, I love you. Her window, that not so shy young fellow, still plays his comb and paper to serenade his love. He never plays piano, the fiddle or the cello. He plays his comb and paper to serenade his love. When he plays like this.
And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. The Demon Cat In Japan, there are many strange and eerie tales about were-foxes, were-badges, and other creatures capable of shifting their shape and interfering with the lives of human beings. The following tale concerns a terrible demon cat that served as a kind of den mother to a pack of marauding wolves. Long ago there was a man named Koke, who served as a retainer in the court of the Lord of Matasu, a city on the north edge of the Hanshu. One evening Koke sent a servant named Tobizo on an errand that took him to a village that was some distance away. By the time he had concluded his business, it was quite dark. As he was hurrying home in the pale light of the moon, a pack of wolves emerged from their thicket and attacked him. Seeing that there was no way for him to escape, Tobizo scrambled up a tree, then drawing his sword, waited watchfully to see what the snarling beast below would do next. For a while they paced and howled, but then one of them stood beneath the tree and rested his paws on the trunk. Thereafter another came and leaped on his back, The third and the fourth wolves did the same thing until they had reached up nearly five feet. Breathing easily when he saw that the wolves could not reach him, Tobizo suddenly felt a chill. He distinctly heard one of the wolves call down to the ground, Go and bring Koke's old woman at once. And with that, a wolf on the ground turned and ran off into the darkness. After a short while, the wolf returned. At its side was a ferocious-looking cat, easily as large as a dog. Scrambling up on the backs of the wolves, the cat bared its fangs, growling ominously. It was prepared to spring at Tobizo. With beads of sweat running down his back, the terrified man took aim and threw his sword at the cat. As it struck the beast's forehead, she let out an ear-splitting screech, then fell back to the ground knocking the wolves down as she fell. Howling and snarling in rage, the creatures slunk off into the shadows. By sunup, Tobizo decided that it was safe for him to return home. When he arrived home, he found the household in a state of concern. Koke's mother, he was told, had fallen down during the night while she was alone and injured her forehead badly. The moment he heard this, Tobizo's suspicions were aroused. He told Koke what had happened to him, and this immediately awakened the master's suspicion as well. The old woman has been acting very strangely of late, especially when it came to taking her meals, insisting always that she eat alone in her room. Determined to get at the bottom of things, Koke crept stealthily to his mother's room, and peered in. She was crouched on the floor like a giant cat, lowering her face to the dish containing the food and lapping it up 
with a long pink tongue. Suddenly she looked up. Instead of the face of his mother, Koke saw a cruel face of a great cat with fiery eyes. With a single roar of outrage, he kicked down the door, dashed into the room, and killed the beast with a single stroke of his sword. A careful search of the room later revealed the flesh and bones of his true mother, under the bed where the demon cat had hidden them after killing the unhappy woman. The remains of the cat were burned. What remained of the murdered mother was buried with proper ceremony and Tobizo was rewarded for having been such a brave and loyal servant. Hi, this is Gloria Stefan from Miami Sound Machine. Happy New Year, everybody. That was a cover by Suko G of Megalovania from the video game Undertale. Like I said, the origin of the American kazoo is mostly unknown. 
There is a story about an Alabama vest and a Thaddeus von Gleg, but there is no evidence to support this origin story. And since its only source is a quartet of kazoo satirists, their pieces include the William Hell Orbiture and the drinking song from the student Blintz, it's probably not reliable. The earliest patent for something like a kazoo was in 1879 by Simon Seller for a toy trumpet that was really just a trumpet-shaped kazoo. Then in 1883, the inventor Warren Herbert Frost patented an instrument called a kazoo. It didn't have a tapered tube, but it did have a turret for the membrane. The kazoo shape we all know and love was patented in 1902 by George P. Smith. It was also the first one to be made out of metal. So I guess 1902 is the birthday of the kazoo. In 1916, the original American Kazoo Company started mass-producing kazoos in New York. This company is still alive and well and cranking out kazoos today. I saw the uh, old 1972 uh, TV movie, The Gargoyles, just, uh, well, I guess last weekend, actually, on, on YouTube, of all things. I've forgotten how cool that is. 
It's the, I don't know, did you ever see that, even on a rerun or something? I only know the show, you know, they had a cartoon. Oh, the cartoon. The Disney, Disney cartoon oh, this was more sinister. It It's, in some ways, it's sort of cheapy, too. It's a TV movie from 1972, but no. they didn't have money. <laughs> it spells, but spells cheap. It, store, it starred Cornell Wilde, and he's the guy, I didn't know, he was in No Blade of Grass, which is a really cool, trippy, um, well... You know, hideous future story. And he was in The Naked Prey. Remember the guy running in Africa with the people chasing him? Oh, okay, yeah. yeah but yeah. what we really would know him for, he's the great Sebastian in The Greatest Show on Earth. <laughs> oh, yeah. So anyway, this guy's very slumming in 72 with this. But this is the, what makes this really good is that Stan Winston and Ellis Berman, the Berman from the Star Trek Berman, did all the Star Trek TV shows after the original and I think the movies. And, you know, Stan Winston from Stan Winston Studios. Yeah. They did the gargoyle suits. And there's some texture problems, sort of, but they're really cool. They're they're based on the actual gargoyles on cathedrals. The look. Yeah. yeah. But but they're very hideous and better than they should be, much better. And they and always when they um Show them, they're like in slow motion half the time for I don't know what reason, but it just makes it look really creepy because they're not supposed to be going super fast. I don't know why. Are they lit? They're lit dark then? They're in, it's at night and they're like. Yeah, because slow motion in have, the day would be a problem. They have cool ideas. Well, they made it look like it's an art house thing. And this guy gets a letter. He's writing a book on demonology, but not as a person who believes in it. And he meets his daughter down in Mexico or near the border, and they go and they um, uh, to this guy. <laughs> he has a little sideshow place, and they go see a skeleton there. And while they're there, the gargoyles attack because because they see the car and they go, "Uh oh, it, the, you know, the jig is up. We can't let people we know that know that we're out here." Okay. And I don't know, every 600 years they hatch. Anyway, I don't know why I'm going so much into this. This is not a topic. But it is a cool movie, so watch it on YouTube. It's free. And oh, the, the gargoyle has the cool voice, weird voice they jiggered around with. And when did Stan Winston start his career then? Well, that's about the time. He, he was, this was like a, um, what do you call it? Um, you know, he's like a subcontractor. He didn't have a studio. I think he started after Rick officially with like Stan Winston Studios. I'm not quite sure. But I just mean he was doing stuff in 72. Oh, How yeah. far back? Yeah, and he's, and he's actually making it this time. He's not like telling people what to do. Him and Berman were making the suits. So. Yeah. But anyway, enough of the <laughs> gargoyles. Uh, a while back, we had this podcast episode with the topic of superheroes that were a little bit well, let's face it, they were a lot below par. <laughs> they were less than super. <laughs> yes, so much so that we wondered how they got their own comic book. Well, turnabout's fair play. So tonight we're going to bring you their weird and feeble counterparts. It's our eight favorite shabby yet wonderful lame comic book villains. So James, why don't you start out with the first one? I think in the doing the research, I think a lot of the time, if you had a crappy villain <laughs> you had a crappy hero a lot of times so it was the whole comic it <laughs> yeah. wasn't just yeah yeah but this is certainly the case with this okay now, this was done in 1966 and uh it debuted in Har harvey comics oh number 23 in march of 1966 and his name was dr cesspool 
<laughs> All right. Which has, I don't think, anything to do with his actual powers or anything. Really? I mean, it's not like he has the power of poop or something. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. But anyways, his he's the enemy of Stumpy the Giant. <laughs> Stumpy the Giant? That was the comic, Stumpy the Giant. Was this like a cartoon or no? No, it was a comic book. I mean, it wasn't like uh, the, the Casper the Friendly Ghost. It was like a regular superhero comic book? No, I think it was more, yeah, like, like, uh, um, yeah, like Casper or Richie Rich or something okay. like that. It was made for in the kids' line, right? So, uh, uh, they Stumpy the Giant was a giant, of course, and then he was the defender of Tiny Town, and Tiny Town wasn't tiny; it was only tiny to it was our <laughs> town, it was like our size town, regular people town, but it was only tiny to Stumpy. Okay, so. Anyways, he, for some reason, they don't have much of a backstory, but he developed an, un, an, an unhealthy dislike for for giants, and he would constantly remind himself, I hate these giants, uh, I'm so puny. <laughs> like, and he has all the power. And, That's Stumpy. And, and, and no. Oh, this is no. Cesspool. Cesspool hates giants. And I, because I'm so puny, he, he had an inferiority complex. To, oh I don't God. know why he didn't judge himself against Tiny Town, because then yes, he'd be exactly. fine. But, but uh, anyways, he didn't really have any powers to speak of, except he was a master of disguise. And uh, he had like these big teeth and he was like, so, you know, ugly and had like slick back hair and a big head, kind of like a peanut. It was weird. And, uh, but anyways, he could change himself into different things and have to, you know, do different costumes and then just kind of make Stumpy's life miserable. All he could and, do is irritate him. Yeah, as a right. Giant. And so, no, well, so here's, here's his main, one of some of his main schemes. He, he had a, uh, he created a formula that makes, that made Stumpy too bashful to interact with Tiny Town. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so he couldn't protect them. <laughs> he was just too. Bashful, he couldn't, he couldn't, uh, he couldn't even interact. He made Tiny Town invisible one time, so in hopes that Stumpy would crush it and they would, they <laughs> get would mad they'd get him. mad at him. He had a a bait and switch ray, which would, you know, he tried to pin some theft on Stumpy. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> And so, anyways, it's pretty lame. Did Stumpy even bother to arrest him? Or Here's the thing. That's the funny part. Stumpy was such a nice guy that he never really did anything to him. He just kind of foiled his crappy plan and said, yeah, well, whatever. But they always came back to try something more. And, and uh, I mean, it could have been Stumpy's, you know, uh, downfall. downfall, but it wasn't. So, oh, anyways, I well, think the, the comic ended before nice. before uh, he could he could win. But yeah, no punishment for for uh, and no, Doctor Cesspool, and no explanation, <laughs> no backstory. He's not even a doctor or a cesspool man or something. I, yeah, nothing. Oh, okay, nothing. Well, my next supervillain, he might even be just a figment of an addled brain because he's the enemy of the badger who was a vigilante who could talk to animals, but that was just one personality of Norbert Sykes, who's a Vietnam vet with multiple personality disorder. So uh, I don't know if anything in these comics you can, you can take for granted. He escapes from a mental institution, and then he runs into a druid wizard who's, who's supposedly been in a magic coma since the 5th century, 
and he becomes the the magician's bodyguard. And he also this is the hero now. He also calls people randomly Larry for no reason. Oh, Larry, how's it going? And it turns out that was his deadbeat dad. And but anyway, there's all these other personalities he has that isn't super. And anyway, he first appears our villain, which is called the Roach Wrangler, <laughs> the master of roaches. <laughs> and he first appears in the um, issue 26 of the Badger, and that was in 1987. This is a, this is a newer comic. And he seems to be the Pied Piper, Pied Piper of Roaches. And what he did for a job when the comic opens is he works for the slumlord, Elmo Sims, who used him to drive out troubled tenants <laughs> out of his, you know, uh, cheap hotels and cheap apartments. And, you know, he uses roaches to do it. And uh, he gets curious and asks him one time, like, how'd you get your powers? And... He, the Roach Wrangler, uh, used to work uh, for the U.S. Information Agency as a pest control guy back in the Sudan for some reason. I don't know why they were there. And he gets lost in a sandstorm, and he found an undiscovered tomb the hard way. He fell into a pit, and he was trapped at the bottom in this tomb. And he didn't have any water or food for 30 days, and he lived on cockroaches that were down there. Very disgusting. And... He could tell that as he ate them every day, it was changing. He was changing. He didn't know how. Yeah, that's kind of he, he said, well, it's either this or die. He was worried about it. And he must have changed enough because the roaches at the end, they um, it just before he got rescued, they gave him this little artifact that looked like a roach. They carried it up. And then it made him be able to <laughs> control <laughs> Thanks roaches. Thanks for all of us. Thanks for eating all of us. Maybe they're enemies. <laughs> anyway, and another career was born. Uh, eventually, Roach Wrangler, he decided that he had enough of the small-time stuff, and he wanted to become the king of Chicago. <laughs> and so uh, the Badger decided to, to try to foil his plans, and the Badger was from Wisconsin. So they had this big war, and they met on the border of Wisconsin and Illinois. And the, the Roach Wrangler, he had like over a billion roaches, and the Badger, he had his army of animal friends and also other people who had... Um, like graders and steamrollers, and they anyway they had a big battle, and the badger triumphed. All of the uh, roaches were smashed and destroyed, and but a um, a strange turn of events that the other cities around Chicago thought he was a hero and thought he had led all the roaches out of the city, and they wanted him to work for them, <laughs> but he was very bitter on the thing, and he he uh, declines and he decides just to go back to a life of crime, and he. Every once in a while, he'd go back and, and try to um, do some kind of dastardly thing, and the badger would have to uh, foil him. But I don't know if any of this is real or just in the head of the badger. Um, anyway, the um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of who did the artwork. I don't think I looked in this particular one, so I don't have that information. James, let's go on to another one. Maybe it's a little less lame. Uh, no, I'm going to go with... I think these are all <laughs> equally <just> lame. lame. <laughs> so I don't know what you feel about uh, Howard the Duck. Oh, I like the comic. I just didn't like the movie. Well, yeah, but we're talking about comics strictly. And, and uh, you know, a lot of people have a love... Uh, you know, a lot of people have a you know a fond fondness for Howard the Duck, but uh, 
I don't know if you remember this particular arch enemy, but it, it is uh, debuted in Howard the Duck number 15, so pretty early on, and his name is Dr. Bong. Dr. Bong? <laughs> no, I never heard of Dr. Bong. Is he, as we would assume, a user of weed? No, that's the thing, right? But it is obviously an illusion, if you will, because this was, you know, supposed to be maybe a, a a adult comic masquerading as something that's of a kids comic. So, so and and why was he called Doctor Bong? Good question, you ask. Doctor Bong is Lester Verde, <laughs> and his alter ego is a journalist that. That is, that is a you know muckraker, but but in a bad way, like a sensationalist, like, trying to cause like, trouble, like TMZ though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? okay. And and uh, he his suit uh, actually contains, or his helmet is is a bell. Okay, <laughs> so it looks like a bell, Doctor Bong. Yeah, and it's funny. It doesn't look like a, oh. the Liberty Bell. It looks like a bell that you would have like by your bed to ring in the maid or something with a, so it's, with a handle and everything. So it's bong like hitting a bell bong. Correct. So, and uh, his superpowers, he kills and paralyzes with the ring of his bong that he activates because he, he lost his left hand in a tragic faux guillotine accident at a rock concert <laughs> oh, no. replaced it with a clapper and he'll punch himself in the face and it that bong will will paralyze and kill people <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. he lives in a gadget filled castle and all the gadgets are fake <laughs> there are none of them are also half of them are not plugged in and the ones that are plugged in are just lights and and fake noises and yeah, stuff. So and, really gives, and he says uh, uh, being the uh, TMZ journalist that Im Im images everything. <laughs> he uh -huh. makes the comment. <laughs> and the weird part of it is, coupled with all of this thing, is that Castle is on a island, and it's like an island of Dr. Moreau ripoff because he has a bunch of, like, mutated animal people <laughs> that are his minions. <laughs> Anyways, Howard the Duck has to, has to interact with him and... <laughs> Have have uh, defeat him because he ends up uh, kidnapping Howard the Duck's girlfriend. Oh, okay. And uh, see if he would just leave the man and, alone. And, he and that's, gone on. that's how that happens. But I don't know, man. And it wasn't like a cool bell. I don't know if that is either such a thing. It was like the little dainty, you know, school bell with the handle or whatever the handles on his head and everything. Ridiculous. All so right. Doctor Bong, Lame. Howard the Duck. <laughs> well, my next villain is the crime merchant. And he's a villain that may not prove the crime doesn't pay, but he does prove that cutting corners certainly doesn't pay. And the crime merchant, he kind of looks like Nosferatu with a bad, uh, you know, five o'clock shadow, oh. <laughs> his design. I, they didn't mean to make him like a vampire. But he read a business, this is what he did, um, where you could purchase plans, equipment, and supplies for crimes. And he started out as Shylock Green, He's kind of a disreputable businessman who he tried to undercut his competitors. That was his plan. Um, and it is, he would, uh, you know, cut everything. And his employees would go, we can't cut everything. We're so low, we're just going to go below costs right now. And he goes, I will cut costs. We'll cut salaries to the bone. And we'll make the employees do the work of two or three men. And we'll run everybody out of business. And then I'll raise my prices. 
But unfortunately for him, all his competitors got together and then ran him out of business. <laughs> and so then he's broke. And he gets this idea, though, hey, you know, no one's ever opened up like a retail store for criminals. Oh, they nice. could just come in and, um, you know, you give them the ideas, you give them the supplies, and they can commit their crimes. And you get a piece of the action. So um, he gets the shop going. And there's no signs in the outside, but in the inside, he has buy the best in banditry, crime plots cheap, <laughs> and and then there's another little sign that says cut rate crime is my specialty, <laughs> and uh, so a crime wave hits the city. I don't know what city this is actually in this universe, but um, yeah, because his plans are pretty good, and the crooks would come around. They'd be looking for like they need the plans for a place, and they'd. He would tell them how to do things on the cheap. Like, okay, you can use ammonia instead of tear gas because that's cheaper. <laughs> It'll still make their eyes water. <laughs> so, but all this uh, shenanigans that caught the attention of the Black Raider and his sidekick. I, I don't know why they don't call them the Black Raiders because they're both the same. They're oh, not yeah. different characters. These are two army buddies from a fictional Black Brigade, which they had black uniforms. And they got medical discharges after D-Day. But they missed the action. So they took all the insignias off the uniform and they put masks on and then they went out to fight crime. So they first appeared in Mask Comics number two and they only made two other appearances and that was in Power Comics three and four and that was 1945. And they battled this crime merchant in number three. And this wasn't a parody. This was not meant to be a joke or whatever. It was serious. So the crime merchant... He might have had a good thing going because he was doing pretty good, but he couldn't stop himself from being so cheap because that ammonia, when the um, the Black Raiders attack, it didn't work as good as tear gas. So it didn't. And then they follow the truck of the criminals back to his place because to save money, he put his license plate on the back of the truck. And so that was kind of an easy thing to find. But even then... He was able to best the crime, uh, the um, the uh, Black Raiders, and he decided to get rid of them. But he wanted to do that cheap, so there was like a steam bathroom connected to the building. He put him in there to save money to kill him just by turning up the heat because it was free. And he was going, "What a horrible way to die!" And so economical. <laughs> so, <laughs> but of course, he had shoddy ropes, and when they had the uh, they had a Kim Possible episode like this. Oh, he, really? And he's like it's super cheap. It's I mean, it's, it's a rip-off. It's the it, crime merchant. Yeah. Well, they get out because of, in dampness, the rope stretch. So he's foiled and he's taken off the jail. And in the last couple panels of the comic, uh, the, <laughs> the Black Raiders, they've learned their lesson. And they refuse. They're going up this building with all these sales on it. And they go, ah, we don't shop here. They go over and pay full price at another store. We don't cut corners. Oh, my God. That's that was hilarious. Anyway, the writer of this gem is this guy named Bill Wolfolk. And he went on to write for Batman, Superman, Captain America, Submariner, Captain Marvel, all these things. And at one point, he was the one of the top paid writers in comics. He made 10 times what everyone else did. Wow. So, uh, I don't know. This crime merchant shows you you can go. It was part of his million words. First million yeah, words yeah, exactly. <laughs> the artist George Apple was the guy who did the, And he did a lot of comic stuff, but he's known for the ace horror books, like the covers and stuff. Oh, okay. So, anyway. That's cool. There we go. James 
What's our next guy? Our next one is the balloon maker. <laughs> I see it. What is he? And this is a, a, a one that my daughter insisted that we put in. And it's kind of grim. So, first of all, uh, they, he's the enemy of Frankenstein's monster <laughs> because Frankenstein's monster is a hero at in one point. In the comic and Marvel in the comic, comics, it's, I think. Right. So, he's he becomes. At the beginning, Frankenstein's monster, which they call Frankenstein, right? So yeah, it, okay. technically it's Frankenstein's monster, but they just I'm going to say Frankenstein because that's what they're calling him. Frankenstein, you know, is evil in the original comics, and then at one point, at, in one, uh, you know, uh, version, he's a he's becomes a hero. Okay. <laughs> so this is that version, and uh, it. He was created by Dick Briefer in Frankenstein Volume 2, Number 2, in 1948 is the first time. Oh, wow. This yeah. is way back. Yeah. So, uh, this balloon maker is Hank Gale, and he is in Africa at, 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 at one time in his life, and steals a concoction that... The local tribe has made that turns skin into something of uh, almost rubber, so that can be stretched and malleable. And they they use it on pigs and make different things. And uh, you know they eat the pig and then use oh, it okay. to to make all kinds of different uh, things that they're going to use bladders for water or whatever. And he he sees this and sees the potential and instills twelve years of it. They're very specific. A twelve year supply he stole. <laughs> okay. Take yeah, well, it, the funny part is, is that he steals a twelve-year supply, and then he he doesn't use twelve years of it. <laughs> twelve years later, he he comes up. He's sick and tired of of being whatever he's going to be, and he decides one day that he's going to make inflatable balloons that are the like the Macy's Day Parade. Oh, okay, but the thing is, is he's going to make them out of people. <laughs> oh, why? <laughs> Who knows? I don't know. That's oh, his... my gosh. So they go up and they think, oh, that's realistic. Oh, it's beautiful. That's crazy. Well, so Frankenstein, uh, in this particular episode, visits his friends at the freak show. And he finds his buddy, uh, the snake charmer, crying. And he says, all my friends have been abducted. They're not, they haven't come back. And so... He's like the last time they've seen anybody. We saw anybody. Uh, they they went to the balloon maker and and uh, so they go visit the balloon balloon maker and the balloon maker's got a huge like a warehouse right and all above is all his buddies <laughs> in balloons and he's like wow this guy's a great sculptor or whatever balloon maker this is crazy these look really weird they have the tattooed man it's got all the tattoos on it perfectly everything but giant right. Because the skin stretches, Frank. Oh, that's hideous. <laughs> so uh, uh, they kind of start getting, you know, obviously suspicious, suspicious right? Because, <laughs> you know, unfortunately for Gail, he, he hires Frankenstein, right? Because he's going to hire him to uh, to be his assistant, but then also he eventually wants to make him, him. A, make him a balloon, too. I so. Frankenstein, <laughs> Yeah. And... He's foiled by his his uh, by by Frankenstein and and his friends, which one of them is uh, the freak that wild man Bongo, who actually turns out 
to be not Bongo but Butra, which is the son of the of the uh, the chief that the man killed. Oh, and stole the stuff. It from. stole oh. from. And so the last panel of the thing is is uh, Butra at his home in his home uh, over his father's grave, saying, "I it's done, father. Revenge is mine." And it turns around and. The balloon maker is a balloon himself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, I like that one a lot, actually. Absurd, yet wonderful. Okay, good. Well, my next one, there have been a lot of criminals, I guess, who have left poems at the scene of the crime, like the real back Bart, actually, in the, in the west of California, up in the old days. But my next lame villain, he was a professional poet, that turned to crime. And I don't know anyone of that. I don't you know, know a professional <laughs> poet for pizza. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> and this guy's known as the Jingler. And he appeared in Top Notch Comics number 26. That was back in 42. And his creator was the, the that busy Bill Wolfuck. <laughs> that, the man, again. And he was penciled, though, by Paul uh, uh, Reinman. Anyway, the Jingler, instead of... I don't know what a poet looks like, but he looks actually more like a conductor. He's got the large forehead and the and the receding hairline with all the wacky white hair in the back, and oh, he's wearing yeah. a, a coat that could be a composer's coat. But anyway, he is mostly a murderer, actually, and he would leave poems with the victims written in the victim's blood. Ouch. And uh, the jingler started out as Edward Fearing. And he was a starving artist, poem poet, who apparently was pretty bad. And not just because the poems they show you, which are bad, but also because no one would ever hire him. Nobody would publish his works. In fact, he went to this one publisher, and the guy said, if that's poetry, I'll eat it. No one wants to read that trash. <laughs> and so, yeah, that kind of made him angry. And, um, <laughs> and when his credit ran out and he didn't have any money... He uh, turned to shoplifting, and one time the uh, store owner caught him, and they struggled, and on accident, they killed the guy. And he panics, and he leaves, but he didn't realize he had left a poem with the guy because the guy had grabbed that at a partial poem. And when they had the article in the newspaper, in the newspaper they printed the rhyme. They said, what is this? And it, uh, it was, uh, I wrote a little rhyme of people of an older time, <laughs> and so... As you can see, not so great. Anyway, <laughs> but he's excited. And he said, they said I would never be published. <laughs> he goes, I'm famous. But I had to murder to get it, but it was worth it. And if wow. murders they want, then they shall have it. Murders and they shall have it. suddenly there was a murder spree. And um, and they, they are the ones, the newspaper coined him as the jingler. And they went, you know, it's been another jingler murder. And... Um, and it, nobody put two and two together, but it was all publishers <laughs> that are getting killed oh. here. <laughs> so anyway, and then, for instance, he goes back to that book publisher that mocked him earlier, and he kills him, and then he leaves a poem shoved in his mouth, and it goes, a man who says he'll eat a rhyme may eat his words another time. <laughs> it's like, hey, hey he's gotten better. His best work. Murder <laughs> has brought out the art in him. And, of course, you know, a comic book villain always attracts to the attention of a comic book hero. And in this case, it was the wizard and Roy the Superboy. And oh the God. wizard 
was uh, is another example of a lame superhero. <laughs> a lame villain. Oh my god. He was Blaine Whitney, and he was a man born with a super developed brain. And uh, he came from a long line of soldiers, though, way back to the Revolutionary War. And one time he met Woodrow Wilson as a boy who told him, you need to use that brain for good, not evil. <laughs> and so he took it to heart. So the wizard... Thanks, Woodrow Wilson. Yeah. He used, he used his fists mostly, but uh, using his wonderful mind, he made all these gadgets for fighting crime, too. And then one time he was going along the street, and there was this uh, shoeshine boy... And there was a mugging nearby, and he ran over and foiled it. <laughs> and he turned out to be an orphan. So he was inspired. He adopted the kid, and he trained him so he'd be have the strength of 10 men. Wow. <laughs> so I don't know how you train somebody. It's anyway. Called, it's called steroids. <laughs> the duo eventually catch up with the jingler. Um, they caught him because some literary critic, for some reason, was going to have a live show where he was going to... Um, criticized the poems of all the death <laughs> the death poems and so of course on the radio and so he was going to show up and kill that guy uh, but they were waiting for him because they figured okay he's coming to this and in the scuffle both the wizard and the jingler fall off the cliff but the the wizard catches himself he doesn't die but the jingler falls to his death and when they go down to his warm corpse <laughs> they found his last poem on him and it was i don't know if he wrote it out of his own blood as he was dying but life quickly cools in poets and fools one more life my friend is approaching its end and there you see death brought out his genius <laughs> and so ends the supervillain the jingler anyway james what's the next one the, this last one for me is my personal favorite so it is uh lord lazy <laughs> wonderful it's the world's laziest villain possibly the lamest uh and he's the enemy of jack q frost which is short for jack be quick frost <laughs> and, and, and okay debuted in the unearthly Spectaculars, number two, December 1966. Okay. <laughs> and Jack Q. Frost has a, uh, is, uh, you know, has the ability, sort of, sort of like Frozone. That's his powers of, you know. Oh, okay, he can, yeah. He can shoot, uh, he can shoot a beam of ice, you know, out of his hands. Okay. So that's his main power for the superhero. The villain seems to just be fat and smart i don't know oh, what the okay. deal is but he sits in a he sits in a high high tech recliner <laughs> and and uh and it's called the control couch <laughs> and he and he never leaves his chair and he has a uh robot uh army that he's somehow made okay <laughs> and he controls it all with so he doesn't with, have to get up. With a little, it looks like, a, you know, like a high chair, really, because it's got the thing in front of him, and he's like, man, watch my robot. Come toward me. And he has, at one point, he's like, come here, Jack. Come closer. We'll grapple with each other. Come so I can get my hands on you. And uh, he has a manservant named, named, uh, uh, <laughs> Viagra. <laughs> Viagra. Oh, uh, and uh, what year? Or was no, this? I'm sorry, not Viagra. Vigoro. Oh, <laughs> Vigoro. Oh, but he, but Vigoro. He right? actually had vigor. Yes, 
Vigoro and and uh, Vigoro feeds him uh, luncheon food pills. He's <laughs> like, here's a food pill. Oh, he doesn't even. He's too lazy to even eat real. No, food. really, he just just has the. He needs to have it. Has the food parade. Um, this comic book was such a piece of crap that it didn't finish anything. So it ended with this guy actually getting the better of of Jack Crew Frost because he. Ruins the Washington Monument and falls oh. it down. By, uh, and then maybe there's going to be a next thing when there's some some punishment, but never made it, man. So that guy was is that actually a one issue comic. Very successful. I don't think so, but I do think that it was just a few you know a few times and the the you know so they there we was no no conclusion guy. right and and uh, so actually in this in this instance this is villain he one won. <laughs> wow and he marred our monster he, mall he destroyed destroyed the Washington Monument and shows you you don't have to you know and his feeble ice could do nothing <laughs> you don't have to be an A personality to wreak havoc I guess my theories are wrong anyway now we come to the last that's very sad this is this I don't know if it's my favorite but I think so. Uh, we come to the stu stupendous brick bat, and he has a kind of a persona of a bat, and he throws bricks as weapons. And I thought, well, that's lame, but straightforward. But on closer look, I realized that the villain is actually a play on words because a brick bat, while while it's also known as any object, especially a brick, that you can use it as a weapon, but it's also a blunt criticism, or a cruel remark, or bad review. Like uh, so the, the actual term brick bat. Yeah, it's a real Is word. That, so he must um, have come across that and go, I got to make a superhero out of this. And and also it, it's like using the sentence, the uh, the critics threw several brick bats at the singer. <laughs> so that's actually a word. Never heard of it. Wow. Anyway, a tad more complex, but still lame. Anyway, <laughs> brick bat, he wears this cheap lime green suit and that's just to keep him from getting sued because he has a Batman cowl after that. He looks just like a cranky Batman otherwise, anyway. And um, you never know his identity because it's never revealed. We see him in the opening of the comic uh, paying a visit to this scientist who's, who he's paid to come up with this new technology, a brick that dissolves when you throw it and leaves no trace and turns into poison gas and kills the people. So he must use bricks and he goes, this is, I need to use a better weapon. So, and he tested on the scientists and kills him so that there'll be nobody yes, that knows. I am the only one who knows this. This all took place in Police Comics number five back in 1942. I don't know where he keeps all those bricks because it's kind of a tight-fitting suit. Yeah, what's going he on? He wouldn't only have so many, but he only needs one maybe. So at, right after that, there's all these robberies with unexplained deaths tied to them because they don't, it doesn't leave a trace. You yeah. don't know what killed them. And they start to pile up. And so a certain incarcerated hero takes notice. And that's Dan Dyke, who's serving a life sentence for a crime he never committed. Oh, it's like incarcerated? Yeah. <laughs> He's the dreaded number 711 who unmercifully deals out justice from behind prison walls. Well, he escapes is what he does. Oh. I thought, oh, this is And, they, and he goes back in. <laughs> yes, he just goes back in. And the warden's in on it. So the warden will come tell him, hey, we got all these deaths. We think you can do something about it. But he'll he'll just say it like to the air, like so nobody knows. And then he escapes out of tunnel. That's actually a cool... <laughs> and, I like um, that movie. And anyway, he, he escapes this time. And uh, he goes looking. And he, he has no superpowers, 
Um, and so you'd think you'd have trouble with the brick bat with poison gas, but it seems our villain has an Achilles heel, and that's he has a lousy aim because all he does to thwart him is he gets kind of near a big window, and when brick bats throw in the bricks, he keeps dodging, and they go out the window, so it doesn't do the gas, and then he runs out of bricks, comes over and punches him with lights out. So, and that's it. He carries the guy off, and he's doing time with 711 in the same jail, but he doesn't know because he's Dan Dyke and that thing. So anyway, I it's drawn really well. It was created and drawn by George Brenner, and he was the first guy to have create a mass character in comic books. There were there was the wow. shadow and everything in the in the pulps, but nothing in a comic book. And that was the clock back in 1936. And he worked in comics until 1943, and then he went off and did Western novels, and he ended up as an editor for Dell. But anyway, he created the wonderful Brickbat. So there you have it, our sad group of villains. Pretty memorable, if not strictly speaking good. But we shouldn't be too judgy. They were all born of the same bad ideas that bring joy to this world. in live entertainment in the late 19th century and early 20th century. They were in jug bands and in vaudeville. In fact, the Mills Brothers started out as a kazoo act in vaudeville. Blues and jazz bands also used the kazoo, and it was one of these bands that made the first recording using the instrument. In 1921, the original Dixieland jazz band recorded Crazy Blues, with a kazoo taking the place of a trombone solo.
1924, Red McKenzie played a comb and Dick Stephen played a kazoo for the Mound City Blues Blowers tune, The Arkansas Blues. kazoo recording this one from 1947 it's the memphis jug band doing sun brimmer's blues Thank you. 
I'm going to the river, gonna buy me a rocking chair. And I'm going to the river, gonna buy me a rocking chair. When the blues overtake me, gonna rock them way away from here. And it's honey, pretty mama, like to tell me what's the matter now. And it's honey, pretty mama, tell me what's the matter now. And you're trying to leave me, baby, and you don't know how. She got a head like a rock, got a mind like a marble stone. She got a head like a rock, got a mind like a marble stone. And the fish and whale gonna take on over her. During the same time that professionals were recording the kazoo, the general public was loving the kazoo too. It was the easiest instrument to play and so unnatural for grammar school bands, but college kids played it as well. So did adults. Kazoos were just fun. Let's take a break from the kazoo now and enter the world of spoken word poetry. R.J. Wyszewski takes us there with his Pinocchio. This is a Bildungsroman of a boy trying to become a man, or rather, a boy trying to become a real boy. Pinocchio becomes aware of his own strings that move him. Pinocchio falls when he pulls out his own life support. Petto teaches Pinocchio how to use a knife, an essential skill for a boy. Pinocchio cuts into his flesh to find inside a real boy. The boy holds a knife to his throat to show how words cut deep. If taken too seriously, 
both man and his analogy will be dead. Pinocchio wants to know the truth. There are worlds of string that pull him in any one direction. Which are the true strings pulling at reality? Which senses are the true senses? Pinocchio must snip to a ticking time bomb. Will his existential truth of being exist if he snips the wrong wire? Pinocchio cuts away it all, but what is essential so he can both propel himself forward and stand on his own two feet? The puppet dangles, lifeless from a wire. Suicide by Cognito. Pinocchio wonders if his whole life was a lie, a performance he was unaware he played as actor. Virtual reality Pinocchio unplugs from his copper umbilical cord. Is he now a real boy? The boy has no strings attached, his devices to a virtual reality. The world does not feel real without synthetic touch. Pinocchio whittles himself into shavings. Pinocchio lights himself on fire. Robot Pinocchio errors each time he tells a lie. Is he only a real boy when he can lie without dysfunctioning? Pinocchio's hardwood goes inside a woman. It grows as he tells her his feelings. Does he know her in the biblical sense? Does he know? What would it mean to know someone? Is love another lie from some external compound? Look, Pa! No strings! Look, Ma! No roots! I am a man walking the earth with neither the constraints of my nature being wood, nor the limits of nurture being raised a puppet. I'm a real boy. I'm a real boy. I'm a real boy. I'm real. I'm a real boy.
That was Eric Clapton's cover for Jesse Fuller's San Francisco Bay Blues. It demonstrates that the kazoo continued to be used in popular music, and with the coming of plastic, was everywhere with America's children. The Grateful Dead used kazoos on the song Alligator. Frank Zappa used them on The Hungry Freak's Daddy and other songs, and the Beatles used comb and paper for Lovely Rita Media Maid. Here's a story of how the kazoo ended up on the Woodstock movie. Forty years ago, just out of the Navy and contemplating college, I took a little road trip with my best friend Jim and my younger brother and sisters in Jim's old battered Blatt's beer van up to upstate New York where we thought we were going to go to a little, you know, little rock festival in a small town called Bethel, New York. You may have heard of it at Woodstock Music and Art Fair. I don't think any of the 500,000 of us that finally made it there realized what, what a scene it was going to be. It was, uh, it was incredible. It was what turned out to actually be four days of mud and music and freedom to do just about anything you wanted to do. And I've got many, many great memories of that time, but there are still a couple of things that bug me about the whole thing. I think the greatest thing that bugs me is I never got any credit, never got any royalties, Never got any, anybody even saying thank you very much for my great kazoo virtuoso that led into Santana's Soul Sacrifice number on the album. went on until the, the, the great segue on the album going into Santana's number. That guy was David Allen, 
who later went on to be a writer for Stars and Stripes. We've seen how the kazoo has been used for popular music, but kazoos have been used in classical music as well. Leonard Bernstein used a kazoo ensemble in his mass, and Charles Ives used a kazoo chorus to represent the crowd in his Yale-Princeton football game piece. On Broadway, kazoos were used to sound like electric razors and how to succeed in business without really trying. The list goes on. So you see, the kazoo is everywhere. Sure, it all sounds the same, but it's fun. We go out now with Ghost Goulet doing Zombie Queen, followed by the official world's record for the largest kazoo ensemble. It was 5,190, set at the Royal Albert Hall. And following that, Take Me Out to the Ball Game at the Giant Stadium, hummed by 9,000 kazooists. Not official, though.
So ends another episode. Uncle Frank, what do we have to listen to before we can go? January 3rd, 1892 was the natal day for the great J.R.R. Tolkien. Tonight we go out with a 1960s interview with the great man. So this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See See you you next month. month. Do you feel any sense of guilt at all that as a philologist, as a professor of English language, with which you were concerned with the factual sources of language, you devoted a large part of your life to a fictional thing? No, no, actually it doesn't make me a lot of good. (laughs) No, I, I, no, no, there's quite a lot of linguistic wisdom in it. I don't feel any guilt complex about the Lord of the Rings, as many people have said. Now we know what you wasted, wasted the last 14 years of Upon you can now get on and complete some of the professional tasks which you've neglected. And so, immediately after I died, I was more busy working at my proper things than I've been for a long while. Yes. Is the book to be considered as an allegory? No. no. I just like allegory whenever I smell it. Do you consider the world declining as the third age declines in your book? And do you see a fourth age for the world at the moment? Our world? Well, the person of my age, you see. He's exactly the kind of person who's uh, lived th- through one of the most quickly changing periods of uh, known to history. And that the world is a totally different place now, at a speed where everybody feels that. Anybody who lives over 70 begins to feel that uh, all through history. You can see that they do. But surely never been in 70 years so much change. Oh, surely never. No, this, I mean, one doesn't have to be 70 years old to appreciate this. This world which I brought up as a small child was indefinitely closer to the world, say, of Shakespeare. But, uh, there's an autumnal quality throughout the whole of The Lord of the Rings. There's a sense of continuous change. Each character feels himself to be part of a story that's forever continuing. You, in one case, um, a character says the story is continuing, but I seem to have dropped out of it. Yeah. Um, however, everything's declining and it's fading, at least towards the end of the Third Age. Every choice tends to the upsetting of some tradition. Now, this seems to me to be somewhat like Tennyson's The Old Order Changeth, Yielding Place to New, and God Fulfills Himself in Many Ways. Where is God in the Lord of the Rings? He mentioned once or twice. Is he the one about the elder? The one, yeah, the one, yeah. Despite the continuous war between evil personified in Sauron and good, you never personalise or personify goodness. Good is there, but it's totally abstract. You don't attempt to ascribe any, any um, godship to it particularly. No, 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 it isn't the dualistic uh, mythology is based on, no, no, certainly not. But, I mean, the whole book is nevertheless nothing but the battle between good and evil. Well, that's, I suppose, actual conscious reaction from a war, from the stuff that I was brought up in a war to end wars, that kind of stuff, which I didn't believe in at the time, and I believe in less now. If I can take this a bit further, you, you, I may make my point clearer. In battle, Frodo and Sam call on Galadriel, all their native country, Gimli calls on the ans- his ancestor's axe, if I read your appendices correctly, and the men call only on their swords by name or on their kings or lords. I would expect them to call on their gods, and yet amid thousands of names, you don't name the deities of any of the races you've invented. Why? Have they no gods as such? I would have thought a story of this sort was almost dependent upon an intense belief in some theocratic division, some hierarchy. There is indeed, but that's where the theocratic hierarchy comes in. The man of the 20th century uh, must, uh, of course, see that you must have, whether you believe them or not, you must have gods in a story of this kind. But he can't make himself believe in gods like Thor and Odin. 
Aphrodite, Zeus, and that kind of thing. You can't believe that the men in your story would have called on Odin. I couldn't possibly construct a mythology which had uh, Olympus or Asgard in it, on the terms in which uh, the people who worshipped those gods believed. God is supreme, the creator, outside, uh, transcendent. But the, the place of the, uh, of the gods is taken. So well taken, I think it, that it really makes no difference to the ordinary reader. It's taken by the angelic spirits created by God, but created before a particular time sequence which we call the world, which is called in the language air, that which is, that which now exists. Those are the valor, the power. It's a construction of the mythology in which a large part of the demiurgic uh, thing has been, has, has been handed over to powers who are created there in under the one. It's something like, but much more elaborate and more thought out than uh, C.S. Lewis's business when he's uh, out of the silent planet where you have a... where you have a Demiurgos who's acting command of the of the planet Mars. And the idea there was that Lucifer was originally the one in command of the world, but he fell. So it was the silent planet, because it had fallen out of that was the idea. Well, this is not the same with me. Yes, yes. So then you have, in your theocracy, you have an ultimate one yes. whom you call... It's called the one only. The one only. And then the Valar, yes. who are considered as living in Valinor. This particular little group of them who, uh, who uh, removed from other parts of the universe to do this part because they became interested in it. In the book, you, I get the impression you always see power as being physically in a high place. You have a high seat. There's Orthanc, um, Medusel, Baradur, the towers of Minas Tirith, Morgul and Kirith Angol. They are always high physically up. Is power for you always, so to speak, at the top of a mountain or top well, of a Well, that's just a symbol, isn't it? Oh, no, as a matter of fact, it's just a storytelling thing. You want uh, towers and so on that could have them down the dungeon or underneath it. They are, matter of fact, Moloch, the prime mover of evil, of whom Sauron was only a petty lieutenant, lives in a dungeon. It must be in a fortress or of some kind. Not that the mother Valinor has any high towers, just of. Well, that is almost without the world you describe, isn't it? It's in the physical world, according to the myth. Ah. Until the downfall of Atlantis. I have an Atlantis complex in addition to all these other things. And quite independent of that, I have a permanent uh, way, uh, dream that I had, you know, let's uh, say that, that uh, the, the ineluctable wave has been one of my nightmares, sometimes coming in over the open country. It always ends by one surrendering oneself. And one wakes up, but uh, it comes in all kinds of points. I, whenever I used to doodle and draw, it's nearly always a lone figure with the vast oceanic wave coming in there. So, of course, I had to write quite independent these Atlantic stories, in which I call Numenor, which means the land of the stream west, western earth. Well, this is the fable, you see. Since the whole question of the human fall is left off the stage, naturally. It occurred, but they're not known these, since they regressed these people. They were given this great island, the first of all west, not in the, in the divine world, not in the immortal world, to live on. Uh, then, of course, we'll always come up seemingly Meaningless band, like the fruit of the tree of evil. Lewis used the same thing in his Perilambo. Their band was they mustn't sail west. They did. That's, uh, Hence the ultimate downfall. Uh, then became an intellectual. They lived there only in memory. They lived in time, but not present time. And of course, the new was drowned, and the earthly paradise was removed. And so then you could then get to South America. I told you the world became round. It always had been. A vast globe, but, they, but, people, but people can now sail around, discover it around. That's the way my uh, solution of the thing. I also wanted to give them the fall of the dentist some universal application. 
The point is, really, I've written some story about in which as they get to the, you suddenly see the, the view coverage of the world going down like a bridge. You're on a line which leads to what was. Of course, you, uh, I don't know what your theory of time is, but what was, what is, <laughs> we never had an existence, must, still has that same existence. But there, it's a, we won't go too, you can't go too deeply in those things, but they really are sailing back to a to world of memory. In this world which you might have created, had you been given the power to do so, had you been one of the valor, had you been save the mark god and um, would you have created a world which is so solidly feudal as it as the lord of the rings oh, yes very much so yes, yes, yes i think the feudal i mean uh, you mean feudal uh, in the widest in sense. The sense not in the uh, strict way oh no 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 in the widest sense hierarchical rather yes. hierarchical exactly yes yes, yes so. i mean that that power should descend by a line of kings to their oh, sons this sort the of thing. yes 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 i don't know about that no, it's, it's, it's a very potent uh, story-making and emotive thing, but um, how far I would say does it really work better than any other system in, the, in looking at the history of the world, one doubts pretty much. It's never been worse, at any rate, than the, than the, 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 the struggle for power that always ensues when you haven't got some line of descent which can't be, can't be questioned. You're, you're, you're wedded to the feudal system, in a sense. Not, I don't mean the, the medieval feudal system, but the idea of, of, of power descending through, through um, blood or through marriage. Or yes, I'm rather ready to those kind of loyalties because uh, I think, contrary to most people, I think that um, touching your cap the square may be damn bad for the square, but it's damn good for you. Do you find a continuing interest in the Lord of the Rings by people? Do people still write to you on, despite the fact that the book's been out for ten years? Dozens of letters a week, yeah. Or have to keep a secret to answer them, yeah. Mm. Were you surprised at, at its success? Nobody would be more staggered, you know. <laughs> Unless it was possibly Sir Stanley Erdman. I was up at uh, Stanley Erdman's um, birthday celebration and a, a bookseller came up to me. I don't usually agree with such fervor. He said that I'd, that while he got <laughs> copied, it sold so well he practically kept him going for a while. <laughs> well, he gets his guinea off the set, you see. Almost the last question. Um, do you, in fact, believe yourself, not in the context of this book, but believe in the sense of straightforward, strict belief, in the Eldar or in some form of um, governing Well, the Eldar spirit. mustn't be distinguished from the Valor. The Eldar only... Uh, the Valor, I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, are you, in fact, a theist? Oh, I'm a, I'm a Roman Catholic. Devout Roman Catholic, yes, but uh, I don't know about angelology. Yes, I should have thought almost certainly. I, I mean, they, 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 yes, certainly. Well, they seem to me to be the saints, or the equivalent of the saints. Well, they are in some ways, yes. They, <laughs> they take the place in this book of the uh, things which in, in many evil and older legends you have the gods and, uh, and the invocation to the saints, which are lesser angels. Yes, they do. <laughs> oh, well, of course, obviously many people have noticed that the, the being to the Lady of the Queen of the Stars, which is almost like Roman Catholic invocations of Our Lady. Do you wish to be remembered chiefly by your writings on philology, on other, other matters, or by the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit? I shouldn't have thought there was very much choice in if I remember at all. It would be by the Lord of the Rings, I'd take it. Uh, I wouldn't mind the other being remembered, but I am conscious of the, the small and not very important. Wouldn't it be rather like Case of Longfellow, wouldn't it? They remember, people remember Longfellow wrote Hiawatha and perhaps one or two other things. They quite forget he was a professor of modern languages.